Hey, how's it going, everybody? And welcome back to the 18th episode of the DCVC. And I'm your host, Akash Bhatt. And I speak to angel investors and venture capitalists investing in tech startups in India on this podcast. I'm super thrilled about my guest today as we are going to be speaking about venture debt, a topic that's already been covered once on this podcast. And I'm going to do a deep dive by speaking to one of India's OGs in the space. Alteria Capital. Joining me today on the show is Vinod Murli. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Alteria. He has over 15 years of experience spanning venture debt, mezzanine capital and structured finance, corporate banking and branding. And he's been engaged in the startup ecosystem in India for over a decade now. Prior to Alteria, Vinod was the deputy CEO at InnoN Capital India, which was also known as Silicon Valley Bank India Finance. And before that, he spent some time working in Citigroup as part of the corporate and investment banking group, where he managed large corporate relationships across auto, healthcare, and consumer industries. If there's one person you'd like to learn more about venture debt from, it has to be Vinod. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode and listen to what Vinod has to offer about this space. Vinod, an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It's taken us some time to schedule this, but I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today. And I'm looking forward to like the next ever. 35, 40 minutes we have. So first of all, tell us how you are and how are things over at Altaria? Like so good to be on the show. Well, uh, things have been fairly eventful, uh, needless to say, the last couple of months. Altaria's journey is about three years old. So uh, it's been in the works for some time, I would say. Uh, I've been doing venture for almost 13 years now. But 2017 was... Uh, the time that it felt right to kind of go out and do this uh, more independently. So uh, me and my partner, we, we came out of our previous organization and uh, the intent was to uh, go out and set up an independent venture debt fund, which could uh, provide capital to startups in India. And at that time, uh, venture debt uh, was not very well understood. Uh, while we'd been doing this for almost a decade, uh, and we had done more than 100 uh, transactions or so, uh, it was still not very common. Uh, and the Indian market was, I would say, still at a fairly nascent stage. So for us, it was a fairly interesting journey uh, to go out and talk to various institutional investors, get them on board. A lot of uh, large families came on board. Um, and that's how Alteria was born. Uh, we got together a very, very good team. We are a team of 10 people uh, based out of Mumbai. And over the last couple of years, uh, it's been a pretty fun ride. Now, let's go all the way back to the beginning of your career. Take us through the journey that led you to where you are today and some of the key moments that defined your career. Sure. So I actually started off as a marketing guy. Uh, so once I did my MBA uh, in 2003, I actually wanted to be in branding. Uh, so I ended up uh, joining ICICI Bank uh, as the brand manager. And my intention was to get more comfortable with branding and areas around branding and also spend some time in market research. 
I never really understood finance back then. Um, actually, to an extent, I would say I was uncomfortable with the world of finance. Um, and my core was a massive interest in branding. I spent a couple of years in ICICI Bank, uh, went through a few different roles, and ended up joining uh, the finance team there more to get over my fear of, uh, you know, wading through an accounting statement or a P&L or a balance sheet. So I spent some time uh, in the corporate banking role there and moved on to Citibank doing more of the same. But the key inflection point, I would say, was uh, in 2008 when Silicon Valley Bank got its license to set up uh, a non-bank finance company in India. And at that time, um, I had an option to go to Chennai as, uh, as part of Citibank or uh, do something called venture debt, which I'd never heard of before. Venture debt, uh, you know, sounds very oxymoronic. It is very counterintuitive. Uh, back then in 2008, this was summer of 2008. Uh, this was pre-Lehman. This was like the heydays of banking. Um, and City offered opportunities to do some very interesting transactions. But this felt like a puzzle that just had to be cracked. Um, it was around entrepreneurship, which was close to my heart. It was uh, a it, it included debt, which I understood pretty well at that point of time. And uh, it was just something that hadn't been done before. And that to me was uh, the most interesting aspect, especially in India. So how do you provide leverage or debt to companies which are non-profitable, which don't have assets, which do not deserve leverage in the conventional sense? Uh, that was a key question that had to be cracked. And uh, at the, at the if you just step back and take a 30,000 feet view, it just cannot be solved because these companies don't deserve any leverage. But once you peel the onion and, you know, wade through the layers, there are possibly some ways in which you can do this and do this well. So I joined Silicon Valley Bank at that time, um, spent some time in California, looked at what was happening uh, across deals in China, in the US. India was a very, very uh, young market. And uh, quickly understood that most of the things that made sense for a U.S. and Chinese market were not really applicable in India. Uh, but we did uh, find some pockets where we could uh, explore and experiment a little bit and did a few transactions. And slowly, uh, you know, while we started off with a handful of transactions, it quickly became 10, 20, 40, 50 deals uh, over the next four to six years. Uh, in 2014, uh, Silicon Valley Bank wanted to exit uh, the Indian market. Uh, it was a very uh, amicably done transaction. Uh, that is when uh, the entity became Innovent Capital, and I was then looking after all the India deals for, for Innovent Capital. Um, fast forward three years out is when uh, Altiria was born. So I think there were a couple of key uh, points there. 2008 was important, where everybody around me thought uh, it was such a silly decision to leave a very strong brand like City and uh, go into something which was untested, uncharted waters, uh, not sure if it will work in India. And 2017, again, was very important, where, uh, you know, we'd done a lot of good work. Uh, we'd almost spent a decade as a team uh, and launched this asset class in the country. Uh, and it was time to kind of spread our wings and do this independently. Uh, so I think those are the two key points, I would say, in my professional career, uh, where you know, kind of a leap of faith was warranted. And uh, looking back, I think those were two extremely productive and uh, you know, good decisions in hindsight.
I've got two follow-up questions for that. And how does a marketing aspirant leave behind his aspirations and venture into finance? Was there anything about the ICSA opportunity that really attracted you towards it? <laughs> so the real reason is, uh, so there are a couple of uh, parts for you, right? One is, uh, I mean, marketing was all about uh, people and understanding minds and understanding consumer behavior. Uh, even today, that's what I do. Uh, uh, when I talk to founders, when I talk to other folks in the ecosystem, what I'm trying to understand is behavior and uh, I love uh, psychology to that extent. So for me, it's always fascinating to talk to people, uh, to engage and, you know, every interaction I, I learn something, I walk away with something new, uh, so I think I feel enriched. The reason to get into finance, as I said, was uh, at the heart of it, I wanted to do something on my own. And I realized that if I don't understand finance, that's a bad place to be. Right? I don't want to be at somebody else's mercy if I was running my own business. My dad's an entrepreneur. And uh, I think it was driven more by uh, the fact that I didn't want to feel ignorant about finance. And uh, I just love puzzles. So to me, it was yet another puzzle to be cracked. And uh, uh, also did not want to feel... Uh, uh, completely lost if I was running my own business. So it was, in a sense, a challenge. I said to myself, saying, oh, Why should this be so tough? And uh, let me approach it from first principles. I uh, had a couple of fantastic teachers uh, on the job who helped me along the way. And, uh, you know, to an extent, I used to spend Saturday mornings uh, having sessions with my then boss uh, in Ivory Bank who actually took me through the nitty gritties and it was not about theoretical finance, it was not about concepts read in a book. It was more about real world applications. And uh, you know, this is like almost 13, 14 years ago uh, and helped me kind of cut my teeth with real world examples of what works and what doesn't work. I think that was enriching because uh, what you see on paper is one thing. What you see happen around you uh, is a whole different ball game. And especially in a country like India, which is contract light, a lot of times it comes down to relationships. It comes down to having a strong uh, grip on underwriting and knowing what really works. So there's nothing better than experience, I guess, uh, uh, which teaches you along the way. And that was my uh, you know, eye-opening uh, encounter, which is you know, not about theoretical concepts, but practically what works. No, that completely makes sense. And inside of you, is invaluable and unparalleled and there's so much that doesn't really meet the eye when you're you know looking at an industry or a job from the outside it's only when you get your hands dirty that you start really understanding the nuances that go into either that particular job or that particular sector for that matter absolutely agree now the second follow-up that i had was why did silicon valley bank decide to exit the indian market this was the right time or if a lot of people are looking back who might not have understood the the industry um, really well, they will look back and say, this is when the Indian startup industry was just about to reach its pinnacle with the 2015 year. And, you know, ever since the market's been on the, on the rise, what were some of the decisions or discussions that were going on within Silicon Valley Bank? And why did they arrive at that decision at that point? Sure. Again, hindsight sometimes is strange for me, but uh, if you go back in time, seven, eight years, uh, India was still a very, very young market. I think at the heart of it, uh, SVB uh, globally had a banking license in every geography that they were present in. And India was the only uh, geography or market where uh, they weren't able to secure a banking license. India has different norms, uh, you know, in terms of regulations around banking licenses being provided. So I think that that part didn't really work out. 
and uh, without a banking license, uh, there were different organizational constraints for uh, SVB being a listed entity uh, in the US. So I think it was more uh, a construct issue rather than a market issue. Uh, I think there was always a lot of optimism about uh, the way India was seen, but it was more about the vehicle and uh, some of the limitations around the vehicle. And the, the other important thing is there was no other way to have a lending business at that time. So the entire AIF construct was not available in 2010 uh, or 2008 when uh, this whole entity was set up. Uh, so along the way, there have been a lot more uh, changes in regulation which have made it easier to set up uh, debt businesses, uh, credit funds in India, which I would say is, is a good thing. And it allows for more, it allows for different kinds of capital to come in. Uh, an NBFC or a bank is more permanent uh, capital, whereas a fund allows for capital to be recycled, capital to be uh, returned to investors. So it attracts a different uh, kind of investor base, which did not exist as an AIF as a construct did not exist, uh, you know, uh, when, when SVB was setting up in India. So I think there are different reasons for uh, SVB's exit. Um, but at this point of time, I think uh, as a market, India is quite attractive. And we have the vehicles or the mechanisms to pool capital and uh, provide that capital to founders uh, in the country. So I think we've, we've come a long way. And uh, right now, it's a good market to be part of. True. In retrospect, I guess one cannot really predict how a market unravels. Now, I, I don't want to delve too much into defining venture debt as such. We've already done an episode on it. So I'd urge all the listeners to check that episode out or read the notes uh, as part of this episode for some context. What I do want to highlight is that debt financing or venture debt is a very established part of the capital markets in most parts of the world for fast-growing tech businesses and all your big tech giants, including Facebook, Google, Uber, Airbnb, have at some point in that early stage raised capital through debt. Now, that's what I'd like to focus on in this episode and learn more about debt as an instrument for funding and how specifically it can be used by both early stage as well as growth stage startups. I guess sure. you know, the good starting point would be to understand the history of venture debt in India. When did you first start to feel that the market was ready and has venture debt since it started becoming a little more mainstream evolved in comparison to traditional venture capital in the country? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Actually, the way to address this is actually to take you through the journey in terms of uh, the product and asset class evolution. So it goes back to about 2007, eight. Uh, and to make one important distinction, uh, you did talk about other geographies and markets where venture debt is uh, much more prevalent, especially in the US. I think we are seeing several billions of dollars uh, of venture debt in play right now. I think the, there are a couple of key distinctions there. One is US is a tech heavy market. Uh, so there is uh, there are very strong product companies, there are patents, and the patents are actually enforceable. So not only do you find product-rich or tech-rich companies, you also have a contract enforceable jurisdiction. So the legal uh, framework in the country allows for a lot of value to be protected. If you look at India, unfortunately, uh, on one side, a lot of the value in the startup ecosystem has been created because companies have 
plugged a lot of the inefficiencies and gaps in the physical world. So this is across various uh, sectors, but we don't have a lot of uh, uh, patenting happening here or contract enforceability being uh, very strong. Both of these, and, and going back to 2008, when we scanned the US market, the Israel market, the Chinese market, UK, and then looked at India, we saw that a lot of the value creation was looking very different. And uh, the Indian startup ecosystem was starting to look very, very different. So the first thing was uh, the logic around venture debt, if you go back to the early 80s, was you have companies which have some patents, which have uh, technology where there's residual value. Even if the business doesn't work, there's going to be residual value in the technology, and that is useful to uh, pay off the debt. Doesn't really apply in India because uh, you don't have patents at the core of uh, several successful companies. The second is you have a strong belief in, say, the bankruptcy process, and uh, you know the, the way to get out of stressful situations in mature markets is very, very different, well laid out, and not so the case in India as well. So in 2008 when we looked at this market, the only thing that was common was you had high growth companies, you had a venture ecosystem or an venture equity ecosystem which was starting to get established. Several players who were relevant in the US market were setting up shop or were active in India. These were, you know, you could have Sequoia and Axel and uh, Matrix and all these guys who were setting up shop in India, uh, you know, 15 years ago. So you had their familiar brands Brands. You had uh, folks who understood, uh, you know, what what really happens. But the companies getting created, the companies which are going to get successful, were not really looking and feeling the same way that you were seeing success in the U.S. So it took us like actually two three years to kind of uh, rewrite the playbook. We had the advantage of being in the Silicon Valley Bank world, where a lot of the processes and underwriting hygiene was well laid out. But the nature of companies were very very different in India. So the best answer, again, going back to my earlier point, was experience. So we kept saying no till we understood which of the companies are being successful, what were the drivers of success. One big distinction um, around the venture hypothesis is we are not trying to identify companies which are going to be massively successful in the long term. We're trying to understand which companies would at least raise one more round of capital so that the loan given today can be uh, repaid in full over a two to three year time frame. So the structure of the product becomes important. Uh, you, the time taken for a round will also dictate what is a good credit. So in the US, if a company takes three, four months to raise capital, which was the case uh, 10 years ago, in India, that was like eight to 10 months. What it means is a company having four to six months of runway could still get some venture debt in the US. But in India, you need 10 to 12 months of runway. So it's not one size fits all. It's not the same uh, rules work in all geographies. So it took some time to figure out what were the right numbers, what were the right answers, what sectors work, within those sectors, what kind of companies work. And literally that took two to three years uh, for us to get comfortable. Once we got to the zone of comfort, we started hitting our stride and we were clocking you know, 15, 20 transactions a year at that point. And then the velocity started increasing um, I think in 2016, 17, uh, you know, we were doing like almost 30, 40 deals a year. Um, in within Altelia, we've uh, done almost more than 45 transactions in the last 24 months. So I think once you get the playbook right, then it's easy to uh, ramp up on velocity of deals because there are uh, 
there are numerous companies which can absorb uh, venture debt, but you need to get the structure right. You need to get uh, uh, the right fit and the right stage, right? So one related question is series A, pre-series A, post-series A, what is the relevance? I think I want to spend a couple of minutes on that. While it looks like uh, early stage risk all looks the same, there's a significant difference between uh, a pre-series A company and a post-series A company. And uh, the key there is the kind of investor syndicate that kicks in makes a big difference to uh, whether debt can be provided or not. At the end of the day, there is equity funding a business uh, and a lot of the risk and return resides with the founders and the equity investor. Venture debt is sitting on top of that. So venture debt is not intended to completely change the fortunes of a business. It is incremental. It works along with equity. So there's a lot of uh, symbiosis which happens. At the end of the day, the objective is to find a situation where you have a good founding team, you have a good market, and you have a reasonably strong investor syndicate with capital into the business, which can use some more capital in the form of debt. Keep in mind that these are still very uh, young businesses. These are non-profitable. These will stay non-profitable. There's no assets. So banks can still not touch them. NBFCs can still not touch them. We are still trying to provide some leverage and solving a part of the puzzle, which otherwise looks impossible. We also don't take personal guarantees. We don't take fair pledges. So it's a very counterintuitive way of approaching this problem. But the experience of having done this over 12, 13 years has helped us kind of fine tune this and find the zones where it works and the zones that we should kind of stay away from. Uh, because you could have companies which are fantastic equity investments, but may not be appropriate for debt. So oh, this was great. Thanks for setting context and sharing insights into certain events that have defined the space. I guess the first question many people might have is around the players in the market. I think you touched the surface of this and I want to delve a little more deeper into it. Why aren't or why hadn't in hindsight traditional banking institutions as involved in venture debt as they could have been? And could you highlight some of the risks associated from a debt issuer perspective, keeping the traditional banks in mind in this context? Sure. Sure. So one interesting example for this is the largest uh, tech lender in the U.S. is not any of the Main Street banks. It is Silicon Valley Bank. SCB has almost a 50% market share of all tech startups in, in America. Uh, and this is after like you know 35, 40 years. So the reason that this product doesn't sit well within a conventional lending institution is you look at the way banks are structured, right? Uh, you have the wholesale banking teams, and within that you have large corporate, mid-market SME and MMA, you know MSME units. Now a 300, 400 crore trading business which has a little bit of a profit today in India still doesn't get term debt. They may get some working capital, but traditionally, none of these companies get term debt for assets they're going to create. While that, I mean, if you are putting up a plant, if you are having a factory, if you're a manufacturer, if you've got hard assets on the ground, then banks are willing to finance that asset. So a cement plant will get funding, a paper mill will get funding, a textile factory will get funding. But if you are a service company, and uh, you're yet to create something which will yield revenues, the banks cannot 
typically fund that because what access do they have and you're not generating profits from day one. They don't have a framework where they can lend against future cash flows or future profits or future assets. They are, their framework is built around assets which are visible and which they are directly financing and which are literally physical and uh, you know uh, that's something they can see, feel and touch, right? The entire uh, thesis around venture debt is building that uh, set of relationships which allows a lender to understand if 1,000 startups are there and if, say, 200, 300 startups get venture equity funding, are there 40, 50, 60 startups which will not die in the next 12 to 18 months and have a very high probability of making through to the next round? This is not just a function of the companies and the businesses and the markets. It's also a reflection of understanding how the venture equity ecosystem works. It's about relationships with various VC investors. So you need to invest a lot of time to do this. It's not a, it's, it's a venture debt market is not a multi-billion dollar market. So for a large bank, you on one side need to have a different risk framework where 99% of the bank is geared towards profitability and assets and credit rating built around that. And suddenly a small pocket of companies will fly against all those assumptions. Plus you need to invest a lot of manpower and resources and capital, and it's not going to move the needle from a book size perspective. So net net, it's a very specialized business. It's a, it's seen as a fringe business for conventional large institutions. It's not going to be uh, you know, uh, a massive scale overnight, and it is going to test your assumptions, and it will put a lot of people out of the comfort zone on credit decisions. So effectively, what it means is unless you carve it out and put it as a separate vehicle, it's not going to find any takers uh, normally within banks. Wherever banks provide capital, largely it has been working capital to some extent, they build in cash collateral, personal guarantees, share pledges, makes it extremely onerous for startups. I don't blame the banks. There's public money involved, there's deposits. They need to protect the capital. So I understand where they're coming from. The point you made was from the company's perspective, the problem sometimes becomes that what you're getting in return is just not much. If, if a bank gives a working capital line for five crore, and ask for a four crore cash collateral plus a promoter guarantee plus a personal uh, or a share pledge, what are you really getting in return? The reason also the banks are trained to work in a particular way. I was in a bank. So when I was in the bank, the first thing is, you know, you basically want the promoter of a company to, to be held liable if anything goes wrong. That's the same reason that the Tata's and the Birla's and all the large groups get capital so easily because They've got a track record going into decades. The start, if you look at the startup ecosystem, they start by founders who are like you and me. I mean, these are professionals. They've come out of college, they've worked somewhere, and then they start something because they want to change the world. They may not be individually, uh, you know, uh, very valuable. They may not have a lot of net worth. But for me, their biggest value is, you know, what they have between the years. I mean, their confidence, their what they bring to the table, they're able to attract teams, they're able to attract capital, what they're going to build in the future. A lot of this is built uh, you know, with an expectation and you don't have anything on the ground right now. So moving away from the bank's conventional way of looking at promoters and promoter guarantees and collateral and cash, 
VentureDebt looks at what is the enterprise value getting created, who are the investors coming in, how much equity is coming in, what is the ability of a company to raise capital in the next 12 to 18 months? Do I understand that path? And can I underwrite to that path? I may not be able to understand that for 10 out of 10 situations. If I can understand that for 3 out of 10 situations, I do those deals which is still solving the problem for 30% of the funded ecosystem. Very helpful. Basically, liquefiable assets, or actually the lack of it, is one of the reasons that have kept your traditional banks away. Exactly. You're right. And uh, the fact that they've done hundreds of years of banking around tangible assets and profitable, I don't blame them for that. I think that's the right way to approach mature companies. Uh, It doesn't work. And it's the same reason that when you're setting up a cement plant, you go to a bank for funding. When you're setting up a high-tech company, you go to venture equity and then venture debt. You don't want to get venture capital to set up a cement plant or, or a power plant, right? So it's horses for courses. And the capital that you're trying to attract, it needs to meet the purpose and the segment and the work that you're doing. Uh, and that's the key differential. No, that makes total sense. I actually wanted to move along and draw some parallels between traditional venture capital and debt-based financing. Now, are there differences when you're developing an investment thesis compared to, say, a traditional venture capital firm? Oh, huge difference. (laughs) I would say it comes down to a couple of probabilities. Uh, See, for every young company, every startup, there's a probability of survival and there's a probability of growth. As a venture equity investor, the only thing that is important eventually is the company needs to grow really well and over a five to 10 year horizon, perspective of a venture equity investor and a venture investor are quite different. So startups have to look at a probability of survival and a probability of growth. For a venture equity investor, the only key output is if a startup becomes a multi-bagger, the growth variable is the most important thing for them. For a founder, survival is important initially and then growth. For a venture debt provider, survival matters. If the company survives, there's a reasonable likelihood that you're going to get your money back. So the way that it splits out is, as a venture equity investor, you make 10 investments. If three perform really, really well and you have superstars, your fund is very successful. If three or four die and two or three are meandering, there's no problem with the fund. For a founder, they get one shot at goal. That's their only company. And hence, it has to do well. For a venture debt portfolio, again, it's closer to the founder's outlook than an equity investor, where if I fund 100 situations, 98 have to do reasonably well. Two or three may not do so well. 10 or 15 may do exceedingly well, which is the same proportion as a venture equity investor has. So there is a significantly different approach. Uh, the way I jokingly tell people, and I keep getting pulled into a lot of uh, diligence conversations for even investors, where I think the best judge of whether a company will be a unicorn is an equity investor. And there are many of my friends who have done this nicely and successfully in India. But I would say my expertise or a venture provider's expertise is to know which of the companies would die or would not do well in the next 12 to 18 months. So one is the probability of growth, which is the equity investor's forte. The other is the probability of survival, which is the venture lender's forte. For a founder, both are important. But in the short to medium term, I think the founders are more aligned with the venture provider's mindset, which is survive, you know, you, you live to fight another day. Over the medium to long term, it has to be growth. And the company has to do well so that for an equity investor, there is a good outcome. So the 
variables we look for, hence the team, the market are all hygiene. So that's important to, uh, to keep a deal attractive for us. But the reason to actually provide capital goes one step further, where do we have the confidence that a particular out of 10 companies getting venture equity, which are the two or three, which are looking more realistic that they'll get for the next round in a 12 to 18 month time frame. The key variable I would add there is time. For an equity investor, a company can go close to death, come back, close to death, come back, and still be a good outcome after six or seven or eight years. Because the fund construct and their product allows them that luxury. For a venture provider, you're looking at a finite time frame of a couple of years or three years, and every month there is a payment happening or there's a test for whether the company is performing or not. So you could have a situation where it's very binary. Uh, the company could eventually be a fantastic outcome for an equity investor, but I may not be comfortable with that risk in the short to medium term. So not all equity deals or good equity deals may be good venture debt prospects. So that's a key differentiation. Now, another big question and, and a difference between the two um, is obviously debt needs to be repaid and you touched upon this. Some of the companies have revenues but are not profitable. So how do you structure that? Is it revenue-based financing where some of the startups pay you a percentage of the gross receipts per month? Or do you have a different structure? And I'm pretty sure it differs from start company to company yeah. and industry to industry. But Correct. what are some of the um, typical ways of structuring a repayment of a loan? Yeah, great question. So like, uh, you know, like we discussed earlier, these are companies which don't have free cash flows. They don't have profits uh, at the end of every month, which can be used to service debt, which is the reason the banks can't fund them in the first place. So what we look at is a couple of variables. One is what is the cash that they have, which is a reflection of how much capital they've raised. What is their burn? What, what kind of runway it gives them? And at what point do they need to raise more capital? So suppose you have a company which has raised $5 million of uh, you know, equity and it gives them 18 months of runway, we can put together a structure where you know we give them some tail beyond the 18 months. We keep pulling down some money in terms of repayments every month. But if they have a door-to-door -door structure of say 30 months or 36 months, the risk I'm taking is if they don't raise money somewhere between 15 and 20 months, they won't be able to completely honor their obligations on this debt. But I'm not exposing my entire capital at the 18-month time frame. So we kind of balance this as a triangulation between what cash they have, uh, what time they have, how much do I want to get exposed to that point of time. Uh, so it's not just around a revenue discounting. It's a combination of how much cash they have, uh, what is their burn, what may make sense for them, and what can move the needle for them. So are they trying to achieve a few objectives? Do they want to invest in you know, further in product and be in a few other markets? Do they want to do a small acquisition? Do they want to invest in a marketing campaign? So it's a combination of what they are eligible for and what they are seeking to do and build a construct uh, which weaves in all these variables and uh, you know, have monthly payments of principal and interest and still give them some risk capital which goes beyond the time frame that they have today. Uh, either the company could use this to catalyze further growth or 18 months could become 20, 21, 22 months of runway. Um, Today, as we speak, uh, you know, because of COVID, a lot of companies just want uh, insurance, they want buffer, they want that much extra oxygen to survive because uh, there's a lot of uncertainty on when they'll raise for the capital. So it comes down to 
who can what kind of runway extensions that they can have through the venture debt construct now this is very helpful and i'm aware that the interest range as well can typically fluctuate and depends a lot on the market the factors affecting it stage business model revenues etc but is it even fair to put a range on that and say you know this percentage or this percentage is typically what we look at or yeah yeah could you elaborate yeah, I, I, more I on agree. that yeah uh, it is and see the reason is uh, there are a couple of components to venture debt uh, product right so one is the fixed income which is through the interest and a small fee uh, so today we are lending in the mid teens uh, so most of our deals don't see a lot of variance on the coupon itself but the key is that there's a small equity kicker and for young uh, if it's like a series a company uh, you know versus a series d company there is a little bit of variance on the equity kicker what it means ultimately for the founders it's about what dilution it impacts right so for a young company there could be a dilution of 75 to 100 basis points whereas for a series c or series d company it could be you know less than 50 basis points so that is the toggle uh, more than the coupon and the fee because our view is that if if you move the interest rate a lot for young companies which charge them higher then they use most of the debt to the service alone which is self defeating so we try and keep the the fixed costs uh, as manageable as low and closer to where banks even finance their medium uh, sized corporates so that it doesn't eat into the debt it allows for the company to use the money for growth and for the purposes that are more productive and a little bit of upside which doesn't rub wrongly with the founders because for the upside to actually pay off the founders have to make a lot of money investors have to make a lot of money and it's several years out so in those situations uh, there's a lot of love to be shared literally so that doesn't uh, that historically hasn't been too much of an issue great tom you spoke about interest rates but i was wondering if you could comment generally on warrants as i heard that warrants yeah. are a key part of transactions so what are the key arrangements that go into structuring the warrants as part of the conversation yeah that is our dilution was talking about so it can either be warrants or partly paid shares so typically for transactions the same example i gave if a company is raised 5 million dollars if you provide them debt of a million dollars usually the equity cover on that will be between 100k and 150k so about 10 to 15% of the debt uh is the typical cover if you look at it from our dilution uh, which is the most important variable for the founder normally a 5 million dollar equity raise means the company is valued at say 20 25 million dollars right so even in those kind of situations you're looking at between 50 and 100 basis points of dilution uh depending on where the valuations are and what kind of warrant covers are there so for younger companies that is the level of dilution which it creates uh these are structured as uh, you know instruments Uh, with a six, seven, eight-year uh, tenor, the reason being, companies need that much time to create outcomes for their investors. And the the median age for liquidity in the U.S. is eleven years. Uh, so in India, we work with constructs of six to eight years or seven to eight years. That also keeps in mind that our fund size, fund tenor is about seven years, and so on. So there's different uh, reasons why we structure the way it is. Uh, what we see is between five and seven years is when you will. get some liquidity out of uh, these equity kickers uh, historically the deals have been part of uh, which have created such liquidity uh, some of these larger companies uh, you know be it swiggy or uh, some of these the well known names uh, that has been the time frame uh, you know where companies have actually ended up having some kind of liquidity 
for the wet critical uh, but the idea is to have a little bit of upside as and when uh, the upside is created for early stage investors as well as founders and uh, it improves the return on the venture it allows us to provide the debt to 100 companies where only 10 or 15 might end up providing this upside eventually but for the other 85 the debt comes at essentially only the fixed income which is actually a good deal for them but the answer is only known after 5 or 7 years right now you've done over 100 deals and perhaps looked at many 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 more either from personal experience or from what you have seen in the industry what are some debt arrangements that have gone well and more importantly ones that have not been so successful yeah so when you say arrangement you're talking about specific situations uh, yes specific situations specific yeah. situations so i'll cover that so i mean uh, over 12 13 years uh, as you can imagine there's there's been a reasonable level of uh, difficulty as well the i think going back to first principles debt comes down to these two variables intent and capacity the one thing i can say is the indian ecosystem the startup ecosystem intent has never been an issue so more than 125 companies over 13 years not once have we had a challenge of intent what it means is wherever people have had the ability to service their obligations they have done that and more and that's a very strong uh, validation of you know how founders look at their obligation so that is one part the second part is capacity given that we are relying on future rounds to contribute to part of the obligation there is obviously a level of risk involved we've had situations where you know either so there was one case where a company was reliant on a very large customer it was a technology company which hinged on one large customer one large contract and the customer uh, had issues and hence it jeopardized the startup's ability to raise capital now even when the startup did everything correctly the end state was that there was difficulty so we worked with the founders we worked with the investors and created a a solution where the technology itself was uh, valuable and we were able to assign the debt uh, in especially around the technology and uh, got extricated from that situation but completely hinging on the relationship strength uh, between the founders and the vcs so many such examples right so the the at the heart of it i think the key is the strength of relationships with the founders and the vcs as long as everybody around the table is keen that uh, there's fair treatment there's appropriate treatment we found that uh, even during difficulty uh, we were able to actually come out of it rather uh, rather okay uh, ultimately if the business itself falls off a cliff if businesses cease to be relevant if nobody everybody loses everybody loses so that is something that we've had uh, some share of we've seen that as well and that is the the cost of you know playing this game so i think there are situations where everybody will lose some capital uh, and that is inevitable in any form of risk capital there are situations which are temporary where startups very uh, startups are close to ra- raising some money they have issues temporarily and they come back after raising capital and they are very comfortable that is par for the course so the key is to distinguish between temporary issues and more structural fundamental permanent issues and handle them differently uh, which also preserves relationships in the long run 
No, as an extension to that, I just want to ask you quickly: Do you take both seats? We don't take both seats, and the, uh, okay. we don't even take both observer seats. Okay. I think the I... fundamental reliance is when in steady state, you uh, we expect that the investors and the founders are best equipped to run their business. So something that I'm also trying to understand is that you know, as investors or you know, in your case, debt financiers are providing capital with little or no equity in hope that the loan is repaid with interest. Why is it not common practice to take a both seat to have an insider view and influence key decisions? Debt is already yeah, risky, and you're already yes. and you're probably taking on more risk by not taking a both seat. So what is the ideology there? What's the thinking? Is that is that changing and are venture debt investors thinking about taking both seats eventually at some point? That's another uh, very good question. Uh, again, it goes back to the underwriting thesis, right? Like I said, venture debt depends on not only the business strength, the quality of the founding team and market, but also the relation with the investors. So the key is knowing upfront, uh, you know, what the investors are thinking and there's no guarantees, right? It's not like we expect VCs to come in and put money in to bail us out. But it's to have a transparent dialogue to understand, okay, what will keep or what will make this company attractive? And then we do our assessment to say, okay, hey, if the company needs to achieve four or five or six things over the next 15 months, what is our belief that it can get there? And if it does get there, who are the people or investors around the table who may actually end up providing capital? If both these questions are having strong answers, then the probability is attractive to write a check. In steady state, by which I mean there's no stress, there's no difficulty, we expect that the founders and the board members who are there, who've given us the confidence to write the check in the first place, are best equipped to run the business. We do have contractual obligations where the companies need to take our consents for certain things, which are material, but more from a negative tracer, right? So you don't want the company to lose a lot of value. You don't want the company to, you know, I don't want a tech company to suddenly start making movies tomorrow, right? So right. there has to be some discipline around what they're doing. But beyond that, uh, neither do we have a, a construct where we have the bandwidth to uh, you know, provide this kind of uh, decisioning support, nor do we want to interfere in companies on their day-to-day operation. This is all in steady state. If there is stress in situations, I think the dialogue changes completely. Where there is weakness, where there is an issue, then we do want to have more extensive dialogue. But my personal view is ultimately the, the, the closest to any company are the founders. The founders and the management team are your best bets of uh, you know, coming out of any hole or any bad situation. The board members are next in line, the equity investors are next in line. And as debt providers, you're always going to be one step removed. Neither, uh, at the end of the day, the objective is to have a strong set of relationships where there's high transparency, there's a lot of candor, and there is a, a strong layer of uh, comfort where everybody's trying to do the right thing. As a provider of debt, we are the most, uh, we are the senior most in the liquidation stack. As long as everybody understands that, I think more often than not, outcomes are fair. At the end of the day, from a founder's perspective, it's about knowing, you know, which are your obligations. So as I tell founders, it's important to make your key payroll. It's important to you know, ensure that your statutory dues are taken care of. But between honoring a debt obligation and spending more on marketing, those are the questions where uh, you know, sometimes uh, founders need to take the right choices. So historically, we've seen that uh, it's not about taking both seats. It's more about having the right relationships and providing the right guidance as it is needed 
uh, but it can be done outside the board as well. Right. And from a founder perspective, I've never heard about this or seen it personally. But of course, my knowledge is not as extensive as yours. So I'm curious to understand if entrepreneurs give personal guarantees while they're seeking venture debt. And if so, what are some of the other protections that you know investors might seek? No, we don't take personal guarantees. So that the, the key is understanding why we don't take personal guarantees. The, the way that a bank looks at uh, a credit is if they go to a large uh, group, they expect that the promoter of that group can step in and bail out the company. We don't expect the founder to put in capital and save the startup because that's not their role. Bootstrap company is great, uh, but... But otherwise, the expectation is that the company needs to be uh, attractive enough to get capital or equity from other financial investors, right? So there's really no logic in seeking a personal guarantee in the normal course of things. So our view is simple, that the founder is there to ensure that they're giving it everything. As long as they're there 24-7, I think that's all they can bring to the table. Uh, My view is simple. If a founder is giving it 24-7, I don't need a personal guarantee. If there is value in the business, I don't need a pledge of shares. If there is value in the business, somebody should hopefully write a check against that value. And that is what is going to pay down the debt. Taking a personal guarantee from a professional who stepped out and started a company, uh, you know, I think it's a very myopic view in the normal course of things. That's great. Now, Vinod, I had a bunch of other questions for you, especially regarding your portfolio and how some deals like Dunzo have come along. So if you could really touch upon very quickly, what are, you know, how does a deal like that come across your table? What are some of the things you look at in very fast, fast-paced growth uh, companies such as those? Yeah. That would be amazing. So I've known Kabir for quite some time. So in fact, uh, we kept chatting for quite sometime before we wrote the first check. And I think that's an important uh, thing to keep in mind. Many deals don't happen, you know, in the first two, three, four weeks of interaction. It takes time to just build some chemistry. And even for some founders who are apprehensive about debt or are not sure where it will fit in, sometimes the answer comes through conversation and it's conversation without any agendas necessarily. So Kabir and I kept chatting for a fair bit of time. And finally, the deal, the first check we wrote uh, came through when the timing was right and the company needed to access a little bit of growth. We've written multiple checks for Dunzo. We, in fact, uh, wrote a small equity check as well. This is an outlier. So we've only done that in three cases in our portfolio. So for a situation like Dunzo, the, the key is when you're growing so fast, when you have a little bit of extra capital, it's not intended to just extend runway, but you know, you're in three markets. Can you open up a fourth market? Can you show a few more things in your primary market? So for example, Bangalore is an important base, but for Dunzo, it was important to show certain variables in Pune, which was an important uh, test market for them to show how the business health is. You could have one market to show growth and you could have one market to show uh, operating efficiency. And you need to plug in different kinds of capital. Uh, you know, you need to invest in marketing in one space, or you need to ensure that your operating efficiency is better in another market. So it's not one size fits all. And for Dunzo specifically, I think what really worked was they were able to use the debt as a catalyst and improve their uh, transactions, improve their uh, operating metrics. And that allowed them to uh, raise more capital faster than they needed to. And uh, again, it's another example where 
the set of relationships that came together for equity as well was you know folks that were known to us and we were able to put more money to work uh, in one of the things that we do for our portfolio companies is bring in our relationships and where some of our friends could be interested we make very very targeted uh, introductions which was the case in danzo as well and uh, one of those introductions resulted in lightbox coming in and uh, you know putting in some equity to work so many of these things uh, are kind of high conviction uh, decisions and danzo is a great example where we've written multiple checks and the company has gone you know uh, has grown very very sharply over the last couple of years awesome that's great insight and i want to quickly segue and head into our last segment which is a rapid fire where i'm going to shoot some questions your way to learn more about your experience as an, as an investor ready yeah. awesome how have you seen yourself change as an investor in all these years gotten more patient <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you could change one thing about the startup or the venture ecosystem in india what would that be i wouldn't change i think uh, it's a very optimistic ecosystem i love that aspect um nothing jumps to mind uh, you know specifically on that front what do you know now about the ecosystem that you wish you knew when you first started investing <laughs> everything takes a lot of time <laughs> <laughs> so i mean it comes down to time for a lot of these things absolutely uh, i couldn't agree more with you now if you were to give advice to to startups in this climate and we're talking about you know covid post covid what's one piece of advice that you would give founders who are either raising funding through traditional equity rounds or through venture debt i think it's one sentence that somebody i respect a lot told me a few years ago is nothing is as bad as it seems and nothing is as good as it seems right sometimes you get carried away when something positive happens and it turns out to be you know not so good uh covid is of course a fairly uh, disastrous situation for a lot of companies but compared to march 15th to may 15th i i it's very heartening to see the resilience i think the entire startup ecosystem uh, is fighting back fighting hard so uh, the only advice is you know keep at it uh, things will change for the better and when they do it happens faster than we think so, so when we are in the midst of difficulty it often seems like you know it will never get better than this and you know the the negativity kind of engulfs you but uh the reality is when things turn and i've seen this across many situations they turn much much faster than uh, we expect and uh, a lot of things get simpler i think it takes a lot of uh, hard work it and it needs a lot of luck as well so uh, i think we need to create our own luck in many senses uh which is happening so i'm not one for big advice and all of that but, but i'm i'm just an optimist so i would just say be optimistic that's great i actually wanted that to be the last question and a high note to end the podcast on but since you've been you've been investing for a while now and have made over 100 deals i want to understand if you have an anti portfolio oh definitely lots of them a whole bunch i mean not but there have been many situations where we were not able to get to the finish line uh, either from our side or from the company side but one company which i really respect where uh, we couldn't uh, do the transaction was big basket i think uh, that's a fantastic business great team and uh, we really couldn't uh, you know have a handshake there uh, so that would have been a, a good one 
to have under your belt, I guess. But uh, yeah, that didn't work out. I had Pankaj who came on the show last week from Bordelsman India who also mentioned that he missed out on Big Basket. So, <laughs> seems like Big Basket is A lot is of us now. have that in our... Hey, everybody has that on there. It's one of the regrets <laughs> that we all have. Uh, you know, it didn't happen for whatever reason. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. I think that's a great note to end the podcast on. Thank you so much for your time. You know, this was wonderful. I'm so glad that we were finally able to do it. And this episode is one of my personal favorites because we have so many great insights on structuring venture debt. And I think that's going to be extremely, extremely insightful for most of our listeners and entrepreneurs out there. So thank you for thank all you, of your perspectives. Thanks a lot for having me on the podcast and uh, you know, wish you well. And that's a wrap on another great episode. Thank you so much, Vinod, for your invaluable insights and thoughts on venture debt. It's a fascinating instrument for financing growth stage startups. And the more I speak to people about it, the more I'm intrigued by it and how each deal is structured. I hope you all had a great time listening and learning from the episode as I did. If you've made it this far, and I really hope you have, please do leave us a rating and review if you haven't done so already. Be sure to also subscribe to our podcast as I continue to bring great guests from the world of venture capital. All the episodes drop Monday morning IST or Sunday evening Pacific time, depending on where you are. So tune in again and catch me with another great guest on the show. Until then, stay safe, everyone, and continue to keep hustling.